And it, it can be something that where you affirm a particular truth for years and you believe it strongly, but then something happens that helps you to understand it so much better. And I think this text speaks to that. So here we are in Mark chapter 8. And we want to begin reading in verse 14. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Actually, I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. So here we go. Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. And Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, Well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Now, what's unique about this story, it's the only two-stage miracle that we have. Now, we could go like to the cleansing of Naaman and things of that nature that, you know, when we look back in some of the Old Testament stories to where they occur in stages, but there's always some kind of purpose to the stages. Here, the purpose to the stages is not related to us directly. We have to look contextually to find out exactly why everything was done. And didn't Jesus have the capacity to perform the miracle straight out? I mean, we know that, right? Because we know in another case, he healed the centurion's son. You remember that? And he sort of willed it into existence from a distance. You remember that? And and it, it happened at the very moment that Jesus spoke it, that Jesus was physically separated from this person. And there are plenty of other times that... Like, for example, the, the, the woman, it's often referred to the, the woman with the hemorrhage, and she just brushes up against Jesus and is healed. And so Jesus has the capacity to heal instantaneously, immediately. And in fact, if you study the miracles and you're wanting to look at the phenomenon of genuine miracles versus false miracles or reported miracles, one of the aspects of genuine miracles that we find is indeed that they can occur just instantaneously, and could actually be willed into existence by Jesus himself. That's just that's part of the nature of them. This is the one, though, that occurs in two stages. So we have to assume that there is something to the stages, and there's a reason why Jesus did that, right? So he touches them first, and he can see, but he can't see. He can see, but the men look like trees walking around. But then Jesus is touching them a second time, and he can see clearly. So there is the first touch and the second touch. So remember that with me. There's the first touch, and then there is the second touch. Now, if we look at the whole story and what surrounds the story, though, we see that there is rationale behind this idea of the second touch. Because Jesus' disciples needed a second touch, in a way. Look back up at verse 14 
in the story that occurs just before the text that we read. Verse 14. Actually, beginning verse 11. Let's begin verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Let's stop here for just a moment. Uh, there's some really great work being done about the Pharisees. We have a tendency to look at them and think they're all bad. When in reality, if you and I had lived during that time, we would have regarded them as, you know, just, just think of someone that's just your most respected minister that you've ever known. Right? Just, just think of whoever that person is. The likelihood is that you would have seen the Pharisees in the same way that you see that person because they were deeply, deeply respected and admired by the general populace. There wasn't a lot of them. Josephus tells us that even in the, in the entire area, there were only about 6,000 of the Pharisees at any one time, especially right around the time of, of Jesus. So there, there really weren't tons of them, but they were deeply, deeply respected. They were great teachers of the law. But there was one way that they were especially respected in that they were they always tried to think about how a person could believe the law and practice it, and they were they were incredibly practical. And so they gave the people these practical kind of how-tos of being able to live into the law. We sometimes think they added to the law, but in reality what they were trying to do is they were trying to think about practical ways to manifest the law. And it gave people a way of being able to say, okay, I can know I'm in the law, and I'm within it if I do this and I don't do this. And the Pharisees were very helpful along these lines. Now, at the same time, there was a lot of what they taught that was just incredibly false and not according to the spirit of the Old Testament. And that's where Jesus challenges them. But you have to keep in mind, it wasn't so much turf they were concerned about. Sometimes they were genuinely, genuinely concerned about what Jesus was teaching. And in this particular case, here's one of them. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. When it says he sighed deeply, that is not just simply saying, you know, it's not like the old lost in space with, um, oh, who's the... Uh, I'm trying to remember um, the the character who used to say, Oh, woe is me. And we're not talking there. We're not, we're, that's not a sigh that's being talked about here. It's really, man, I can't believe this. You know, it's just, it's, it's deep frustration, anger on Jesus' part. He's, he's just, he's so upset. And when he, it, it, I really want you to imagine the sighing deeply, and he asked the question, Why do we look for a sign? Well, I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. I mean, it's really that kind of resolute, kind of... In all, Jesus is almost storming away from the situation. Verse 22. Verse 14, pardon me. The disciples, you know, they're, they're, they're in a boat right now, and they're going to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They needed something to eat. Except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Well, Jesus sees this as an opportunity to say something to them about teaching. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now what he's talking about is the influence of the Pharisees and those of Herod. The yeast, the influence, right? Well, of course, the disciples got real literal. 
They discussed this with one another and said, uh, well, it's uh, because we don't have any bread. That's why Jesus is saying this. Uh, we need to get bread, but we need to watch out for bread made by the Pharisees and people of Herod. The kind of bread they eat. I might have thought the same thing, right? I might have been sort of geared that way myself. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Again, I don't think Jesus has gotten over his anger. I mean, I think he's still feeling a little bit of it. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ah, now we're getting it, right? You see but you don't see? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Uh, twelve. Yep, okay, twelve. Hold the five. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, now you can see them looking around at each other. Seven. Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand. So, what Jesus is saying to them, look, if I needed physical bread, don't you think I could make it? And just kind of, here it is? I mean, look, you remember how much bread I created out of that little bit? And you had a whole lot left over? Now, there is some symbolism, I think, to the numbers that he's giving here, 12 and 7 and that kind of thing. We could get into that, but I don't want to get too much into those weeds right now. Well, so, after this, Mark records this story. It's not necessarily that it had to happen, you know, right after it or whatever. Mark is just putting these stories together in a sort of editorial fashion to convey something about the nature of Jesus. And so he, he now tells this story. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him, and so on. And that's when he goes through the two-stage healing. You remember, in the two-stage healing, the person could see, but he couldn't see just like the disciples who could see, but they couldn't see. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. That's another place where Jesus talks about that kind of thing. So in a sense, he is saying to them, he's saying to the disciples, you need this second touch in your understanding of who I am in the same way that this man needed the second touch in order to see. So it's symbolic. In fact, it's directly after this dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples and after the miracle that you have this conversation that goes on between Jesus and the disciples beginning in verse 27 that Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about them. So, it's where they, they got the identity right. They got his identity correct. They, they, they were beginning to understand. See, to this point, they had seen but not seen. They had heard but not heard. Then Mark tells the story of the person who saw but didn't see but eventually did see, right? And now finally, Mark is conveying that Jesus' identity and his mission is more clear to them. So they're 
seeing more clearly. Are you getting it? They needed the second touch. In the same way that that man needed the, the second touch in order to see. You ever needed a second touch? You ever gotten a second touch? Boy, I know I have. See, here's the difficulty. You can be so saturated with Scripture and thoroughly exposed to the power and the goodness of God and still suffer from spiritual blindness. I mean, you, you can. In the churches of Christ, in the Stone Campbell heritage, we pride ourselves in knowing. Knowing. Knowing things. And if we're real honest, there's still enough in our tradition that makes us feel like, sometimes thinking, that we know things better than some other people know them. Now hopefully a lot of us have learned enough theological humility to be able to acknowledge that that's not altogether the case. That we, we don't always know what we think we know, but we do pride ourselves in knowing. I remember there was a period in my spiritual journey where I was not able to accept something that was a completely new understanding for me because of the fear of what that meant about my past and my future. It, it was kind of like, you know, well, if, if 100% correct knowledge is part of what saves me, which was kind of my shame-based understanding of things, then if I learn something new, that means I didn't have it before, and what if there's something else I learn completely new and better and different in the future, what does that say about where I am now? You see, it, 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 it's kind of roots of deep security in us, insecurity in us, and instead of having some kind of doctrine of the security of the believer, churches of Christ have promulgated a doctrine of the insecurity of the believer. You know, and one of those doctrines is is based on the idea that we we need to have relatively perfect understanding. But in, in reality, don't all of us know? We're, none of us is going to make a hundred on God's theological exam when the time comes. I mean, we're, none of us is, is going to do that. I'm still learning new stuff all the time. And there are things about doctrines, points of theology that I have thought I understood really well, but I continually understand better. We pride ourselves in knowing. Sometimes, I'll never forget, one time when I taught a class, on grace as a higher motivation than duty in the Christian walk. And a man came up to me afterwards who was much older than me, whom I deeply respected and still do. We have a fine relationship. He came to me and he said, all right, I, at the time I was in my 30s, so this was a long time ago, right? And that wasn't too long ago. Let's say, you know, five or ten years ago. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, I was in my 30s and I was teaching this class and he came up to me. He was in his 60s. Um, he was uh, you know, a very, very intelligent man, an engineer. I mean, he was known for some of his uh, you know, things he had invented and he had a lot of patents to his name. I mean, this guy was brilliant. But he came to me and he said, I've been a member of the church for over 40 years. I want you to tell me how it is 
that I could have been a member of the church for 40 years and never heard what you just said? Well, I didn't know how to answer that question. Other than the fact, I wanted to say, well, thank God that you've heard it now. You know, I mean, I, I wanted to say that, but I didn't. I was much more respectful. We had dialogue about it. And, I, and But I'll never forget that conversation because I think he represents something that's sort of innate in a lot of people who are members of our churches. We're very word-centered. Um, sometimes when I teach my classes in spiritual formation, I ask the, the students to take uh, what's a, a good reflective inventory. It's not scientifically validated, not psychologically validated, but it's a good reflective inventory called the Spiritual Formation Inventory, the Spiritual Styles Test, where you end up with one of four spiritual styles, sage, lover, prophet, or mystic. Okay? And invariably, I mean, I've trained ministers for the Churches of Christ and the independent Christian churches now since the mid-90s. And when I ask them to take the spiritual styles test, about 85 to 90% of them are sages, which means they're deeply word-centered in their spirituality. And my guess is it would be the same way if I asked you guys to take the spiritual styles test. That a lot of us would be sages, people who are very, very word-oriented. And the more word-oriented we are in our spirituality, the more we begin to think, I've got to get it perfectly right all the time. Well... Sometimes we need a second touch. Because there are a lot of things, there's a vast treasure of knowledge that may take a lifetime to unfold. We often need a second touch. And sometimes it is in the areas where our thinking is more deeply embedded within us where we need that second touch. We're not blind in that there's a great deal of things that we understand, but there's still a lot that we don't see. Are you with me there? We see, but we don't see. We understand the doctrine. We, we get the point of theology. We get the teaching about Jesus that's reflected in whatever we're learning. and We, we see it, but we don't and we need some kind of second touch where Jesus expands our vision. He gives us a greater capacity to recognize things that before we just hadn't seen before. And when he does it, it's often in the area of our deepest need. And it can happen any time. It can happen during an illness or suffering of some kind. It can, it can happen after a disappointment. It, it can happen alongside unexpected events. It can happen at a time that we least expect it. But it happens. It could be a burst of insight, a point at which a piece of the gospel story is made clear. And for a lot of us, we need a series of second touches throughout our lives. I remember the first second touch I received. I grew up in the Churches of Christ. I was born and bred in the Churches of Christ. I had, you know, assembled together with the saints, been guided, guarded, and directed until the next appointed time, led by wise elders, 
always making sure that my contribution was given in distinction from the Lord's Supper. You know, I knew 728B. I knew where it was located. I knew the Church of Christ anthem. I knew it extremely well. You know, I mean, it, it, I grew up, I was Church of Christ through and through. The only difference was one of the first preachers I remember, his name was O.D. McKendry. He stood for Otis Daniel. That was his name. We called him Overdrive, Old Devil. I mean, any number of things we called him. He was an old, he was an old-fashioned Southern Baptist revivalist preacher. He just didn't know it. I mean, you know, the guy who stood up and led singing in our church, his name was W.T. Wynn, big old tall guy, an operatic voice. I mean, he had great big jaw muscles, and I used to think that he got his great big jaw muscles from singing so much. But when he was telling me, How great I mean, it just rang through. But then he would sing 16 verses of Just As I Am, and O.D., I've only got one arm, O.D. would just go up and down the aisle, and he would look straight at you, Won't you come? Won't you come? But I grew up in a church of... The city was 10,000 people. The church was 600. Okay, I mean, this is over in Mayfield, Kentucky. Western Kentucky. I was born and raised. My mom took me to church from the time I was two weeks old. I knew the Bible. So when I got to Lipscomb College, and one of my teachers began to talk about Romans. And he said, if you get Romans, God gets you. And he began to talk about grace. But he began to talk about it in ways I hadn't heard it before. So I decided I was going to set him straight. So I picked up Robertson L. Whiteside's commentary on the book of Romans. And I read that thing. And I quoted it at least, at least 60 times in about an eight-page handwritten, pencil-written paper. And I presented it to him for his edification. came to class the next day and he said some of you are having a struggle with what the apostle Paul says about grace you notice the way he introduced it it was no problem I was having about what he was teaching about grace I was having a tr- trouble with what the apostle Paul was teaching about grace and that's the way he put it he was very kind and uh, he said I understand he said but all of you in here are very young. And I fear that you have not sinned deeply enough and come to understand the depth of your sin greatly enough to know your need for grace. But the day will come that you do. And I hope you will remember this day as we continue to talk about grace. And I went up to him not long after that, and I apologized for the paper. And he looked at me, and he said, My son, tell me, what are you afraid of learning? Whoa. Man, what a question. You talk about a second touch. Woo! And Jesus administered the second touch to that man who taught me some things about grace. It can happen that way for us, too. It can happen that way for us, too. There are lots of ways we may need the second touch. Let me suggest a few. It may be we need the second touch 
in the wounds of our deepest pain. Now I want to be careful there not to unearth old pain and old memories. That's not my purpose. I'm not trying to do that because I know I know faith memories can be both very, very good and some faith memories can be very, very painful. I, I get that. When people let you down, I have a friend who, um, in fact, he was one of my students, finished his Master of Divinity at Harding with us and just viewed it as a, a great opportunity to go back to his home church. And he went back to his home church to minister. And it was there that not long after he got there, about six months after he got there, he discovered through story after story that was verifiable that his father, who had been the minister there for about 40 years, was a serial abuser. And he had to report his father. And his father is now in prison. And he has a ministry helping churches to understand how that happens in churches now. It's his ministry. And he does that. It's a, it's a beautiful ministry. But God touched my friend in his deepest pain when he discovered that. Can you imagine how difficult that was for him? But realizing from the standpoint of his own shepherding, as well as from the standpoint of legalities, he needed to report it. And it was, it was so hard for him. So he was touched in his moment of deepest pain. But what it conveys is the fact that there are sometimes some really painful things that can happen in church settings if we're not careful. And people can have really, really bad experiences. And they need Jesus' second touch in their lives. It may be in an area of spiritual and emotional hardening where God just needs to soften you a little bit. Maybe a bad experience with churches. Not that anybody, you know, did you wrong or whatever, but, you know, you, some of you heard me tell the story before. It's not just a story. It's, it's something that's happened several times in my life where I get to speak to a lot of elders, people who are, you know, working with churches. And sometimes they come up to me not long after they're appointed and they'll say, you got any words of wisdom for me? And I'll say something like, well, you know, you became an elder because... You've been traversing primarily in the rose garden of the church and you love the church and you want to give your life to it. Which is good, that's great, but you need to understand you've just shifted from the rose garden to the sewage treatment plant of the church. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be really, really hard. And sure enough, that's true. I mean, you become an elder, you're, you're dealing with the bad and the good. And the, one time I said that and somebody who ran a, a utility company um, was in the audience and they didn't know that. He came up to me and said, by the way, you Serious treatment is good. I said, well, I know. I, I mean, I know it's a good thing, you know, and I'm, I'm glad we do that, but still. Sometimes it can be in a place where faulty understandings are embedded, habituated, even preferred, right? Other times it can be in the foggy places of spiritual uncertainty in doubt. And, and then you're faced with something that is relatively certain in Scripture. Certainty can be just as disturbing as uncertainty. I mean, what it can be. It can be just as disturbing as uncertainty. It can be in an area where your will is divided. And, and you, 
And God just kind of cuts through that. The Holy Spirit just works really powerfully through something you hear, through something you read, or whatever. Just, just cuts through that, and you realize, I've got to make a choice here. Am I going to obey or not? Right? So there are lots of different times and spaces of our lives that this happens. And there are a few ways it can happen. It may be that a teacher impacts you with knowledge that just makes the lights come on. That can can happen. When I taught at Johnson University, one of the things I loved about my appointment there is I got to teach freshman Bible. Freshman Bible was fun. I mean, it was just, it was great fun. You know, because they they come there wide-eyed, just so excited about their new college experience and I got to teach gospel narratives to, to that group. And just going through the stories of Jesus in a way that some of them had just never been through them before. And the, the, the understanding that just unfolds during that time. It was, for me, a turning point when I took that class as a freshman. And it was for many of them. Sometimes a second touch can come when a teacher impacts you with knowledge. Sometimes it can be a disorienting circumstance that removes all the props. A disorienting circumstance that removes all the props. I often describe the ages 18 to 24 as the malfunction junction of adult life. I've worked in a lot of churches that have campus ministries. And I've been the preacher in that setting, and my colleagues have been maybe the the campus ministers in that setting but, but I, I think it's true. When you turn 18 you go to college, your, your family, your friends, your church, all of the props that made faith relatively easy to practice, they're gone. I mean, you're, you're kind of by yourself in that setting, especially, now, you know, we want to say it especially happens at a state university. It happens in Christian universities too. I mean, man. I mean, you, you can find, most of what you can find on a state university campus, you can find it just as easily on a Christian university campus. It's just that it's easier to find the other stuff, too. You know, I mean, you, you, you can go there and you can find the best of Christian examples, the best of Christian teaching, and so on and so forth, but you can also find the most ungodly of Christian examples and that kind of thing on those campuses as well. So the same kind of dynamic occurs in people's lives during that time. That's just one instance. We can talk about several others where there's kind of a, a disorienting circumstance, maybe a, a, a divorce, or maybe, maybe just a natural progression of adult life transitions, maybe in the empty nest period, where you know, sort of the props that have made your life meaningful and important up to that time, you know, it, and, and then your children are away, and the house is empty, and it's not the same noise and the same chatter and the same love that you experienced in that environment. And you know that they're dependent on the foundation you've given them and you agonize over whether you gave them the right one. And it can be difficult. But still, there are faith questions that come to you during that time. They don't come any other time. First retirement can be another. These days we're encouraged to call it first retirement. Somewhere in the 60s, maybe early 70s, the first retirement, a lot of people move on to another job, another kind of role in their lives because we're living longer except for people who walk into bathrooms at health clubs and bust their heads wide open, you know. But still, it can happen that way. It can happen through a broadening or diversification of life. 
a broadening or a diversification of life. You realize, think about this, guys. Read the book of Acts. You realize the book of Acts is the story of the gospel moving to different ethnic groups and the challenge that was for the people who had to do it. It is. When you read the book of Acts, that's what it is. People sometimes question whether there's a lot in Scripture about social justice or about justice or about you know, ethnic harmony or racial harmony or whatever. Just read the book of Acts. I mean, it's full of that. Where you had the Jews going to the Samaritans and the Samaritans, you know, interacting. Then you had the Apostle Peter. You remember Peter? How that he didn't want to go and circulate among those Gentiles who ate all that gross food. And God spoke to him in a dream. And Peter went, and there was this Cornelius situation, and Peter was just really, really surprised. But God needed Peter to go through that experience so that Peter could help Paul. And then, you know, Paul goes to the Gentiles. The story of the book of Acts is God broadening and diversifying, in a sense, the the missional field for the gospel to be spread. And some of the most significant challenges that occurred with the people in the book of Acts is when they had to do that. You know, Acts chapter 6, when the widows aren't being... When, when the Grecian widows are not being given the same attention as the Hebraic widows? That's an issue of ethnic justice. I mean, that's exactly what that is. Sometimes you receive some of the most significant learning in your life when you deal with a group of people who are completely different than you and you're trying to spread the gospel to them. Sometimes it can be that way. That's a broadening or a diversification of life in lots of ways. Sometimes it can happen when you just, you know, travel from Nashville on a plane and come up to Montana. You know, I mean, it's like about a broadening or a diversification of life. I mean, you guys talk different, you know. You, you know, you take your trucks into places that I would just never even dream of going because you don't even know if you're going to be able to get out. I mean, hearing all those stories, I'm thinking, man, talking about a spirit of adventure, you know. In the south, and if you don't have a gravel road, you just don't go there. And if you don't know where it leads with a sign, you just don't take it, you know. That's the, that's the south. And you always have to find some kind of little country store that's got R.C. and Mumbai, right? You guys are just more, much more explorers here. And I'm thinking, boy, that Montana spirit, ah, yeah, right, well, it is. You know, part of the reason I love coming here, it's a broadening and diversification of life for me, too. So how should we respond when this happens? I've tried to mention to you several areas where we may need a second touch, right? And I've tried to mention a few ways that it can actually happen in our lives. How should we respond when it happens? Number one, avoid the claim that you already see it clearly. When you're exposed to something and you're asking to yourself, well, I've listened to it, and I can't really deny, it sounds true. Well, sometimes you just have to abandon the idea that you had the perfect and the best understanding before it. That you, you have to acknowledge some degree of theological, existential humility in the doing of that. I, I think that's part of what James is describing about 
good godly wisdom over in James chapter 3 that partly it's open to reason. That's one of the, the characteristics that is presented there. But then, secondly, I think one way that we should respond is to just pray the prayer of unfolding discernment. And that prayer is one of the beautiful prayers over in Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to close with this text. It's uh, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, where Paul prays this prayer for the Ephesians. And I call it Paul's prayer of unfolding discernment. And this is the way it reads. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom this whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the, his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Then there's another one also beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1, where Paul says, For this reason, since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Beautiful prayers. Prayers of unfolding discernment. Well, Sometimes we need the second touch, do we not? Pray that we know when we're getting them and that we receive what they teach us. Amen? All right. Blessings, guys. You bet.